Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by Lee Miller. She's a retired educator, lifetime gardener, landscape designer, garden consultant, and garden blog author. She's also just come out recently with a book called Gardening by Month, a monthly guide to planning the Northeastern and Mid-Atlantic Garden. Welcome, Lee. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking time to join us. So, busy... <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at the time we're talking, it's it's close to the end of August, beginning of September, um, and you just dodged a hurricane in your area. Yes, we did. It was headed right towards my little town of Sable, and he veered off just in the, the lick of time. Sorry, sorry, Rhode Island friends. It went that way. (laughs) But good to know you're safe and sound. And for our listeners, Lee, could you talk a little bit about where your garden is located? Okay, I am located on the south shore of Long Island in the town of Sable. So about midway through the island, about 70 miles out of New York City and about 70 miles off of Montauk Point. Hmm, Must be lovely. It is. Uh, It's a lifetime home, and I never left. Nice. So let's talk a little bit about you and how you got into gardening. Were you born with a green thumb? Yes, I was. Uh, It all started about the age of five. Um, As I mentioned, I'm in my childhood home. I never left. And I grew up next to a family with five children who were like brothers and sisters to me. And their mom, Joan, Mrs. O'Hara, was an avid gardener. And every time, pretty much every day that I would go over next door, Joan would take me on a tour of her garden. And she'd point out the different flowers and, and give me a little information about each one. Well, it got to the point I went home one day and I asked my mother for seeds. I said, Mom, I, I want to grow some flowers. So she got me some seeds and pots and I grew those seeds and I nurtured them like my own children. Uh, And then the story just keeps going on and on from there. Uh, I believe I, at the age of seven, we were riding along the the highway and my dad, knowing I had an interest in gardening, saw this lone, poor Eastern red cedar that had been dug up and just left to die on the side of the, the highway. So he goes, let's take that tree and let's plant it. So at the age of seven, I planted my first tree and my love of gardening has just grown and grown and grown. And it's part of me, you could say. Hmm. And so did you always know you wanted to be a landscape designer by profession? Well, I, I grew into that, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I, 
always had a love of science. I did have a love of plants and horticulture. I ended up going to school to become a science teacher. So I taught earth science and biology for 32 years. Uh, 26 years ago, I furthered my education and decided to start a landscape design business. And here I am 26 years later designing. I love it. They say, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. That is so, so true. I love working with the clients. I love designing the gardens and it's just, it's, it's a passion. Wonderful, Lee. And it's so interesting how many of the guests of the Garden DC podcast have been teachers or related professions in their past and then gravitated over to some type of horticultural field. Mm-hmm. And so your own home garden, what, what is that like? Well, I have a few plants. <laughs> uh, it started off, my home garden back in the day started off with the typical, what I call the homeowner special with the ewes and, the, and rhododendrons in front of the house that finally engulfed your house to the point that you couldn't see it any longer. And we had an old lawn. Nope. There wasn't any irrigation at the time. So the lawn was burnt up. There was a big cherry tree in my mom's iris garden. Well, over the years, I have completely revamped. There are gardens everywhere. I can never get enough gardens. And I just, I just keep adding and adding and adding. And now it's to the point that it's, it's our own little sanctuary. I love to sit outside. I love to enjoy the plants. Uh, Friends come over and enjoy the plants. Uh, But it it has grown over, over the, the many, many years. And they say a mature garden isn't till about 10 years in. When would you say that your garden, you said, that's pretty much complete? Um, it's never complete. <laughs> but No, I would say about 10 years in uh, until the, the, plants, the plants mature and it gets to be exactly the way you, you want it to be. But then there's always, you have to get a new plant once in a while. Sometimes you just can't resist. So then you have to walk around and plan a spot to, to put it and enjoy it. <laughs> so that's when you're going to the garden center, falling in love with the plant, right? <laughs> yes. And have no idea when you get home where this plant is going. Uh, yes, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when you're walking around like a crazy person with a plant in your hand. Thing. You, you can, mm-hmm. can it fit here? Can it fit here? You've got it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's like 50% of gardening after the first decade. <laughs> is, I agree. <laughs> is, is escorting plants all around the garden. Right. And for your clients, what style do you design predominantly for their landscape? Well, I what I do is I, it's a very personalized type of thing. When I initially meet with a client, I will ask them, are you looking for formal? Are you looking for informal? Are you looking for an entertainment space? Uh, are you looking for privacy? Are you looking for low maintenance? Low maintenance is a, is a big thing. Are you looking for deer resistant gardening? So I interview them before I even start. I would say most of the time the clients choose what I call an informal garden or a traditional garden with curvy linear lines versus straight lines. But every so often I'll get someone who wants, it depends on the house. So I'll, I'll go with the straight lines, but most of the time it's more of an informal, low maintenance uh, type of garden. And low maintenance, 
Mm-hmm. Can you define that for our listeners? Well, it certainly it doesn't mean no work, but mm-hmm. there are plants that I use. I have plants in my garden, Kathy, that I planted five, seven years ago. I have not touched them. And I can give you a few examples of those. Yeah, definitely. Okay, some of my favorites are the, the dwarf evergreens. You have golden hinoki cypress. There's one called Aurea nana. It gets two to three feet, lifetime. You don't have to touch it. There's another one called Verdoni, which only gets eight feet lifetime. You don't have to touch it. There's blue globe spruce. Uh, it's a dwarf. Um, it only gets two to three feet in height, but that's over many, many years. Same thing. There is a cute little muco pine that uh, came out not, not too long ago. It's called Slow Mound, just as the name says. That's the one I've had about five years. I have never touched it. It only grows to about one foot high by wide. So there's there's a lot of, I can go on and on with the list. Uh, there's a lot of low maintenance plants, which you don't really have to do a thing except maybe clip a little branch here and there if it needs it. And even then it, it's it's practically maintenance free. That sounds even better than a concrete driveway, which still needs sweat, swept right <laughs> every once in a while. And so what made you write Gardening by Month? Was that something prompted by your clients or an idea that you had? Good question. Very good question. Uh, it was really the pandemic that brought it about, believe it or not. Uh, I've been writing my blog, A Guide to Northeastern Gardening, since 2010. So every month I post what's blooming. So I have a diary of what's blooming or berries or bark or foliage at that time of the year, that that month. Uh, I started making up my own Word document with pictures of the plants by month for my own reference. And when the pandemic hit, the green industry, the horticulture industry virtually shut down. The nurseries were closed. I could not see clients. We were at a complete halt. So I had time at that point to visit. There's a wonderful arboretum right down the road within 10 minutes from me. And I would go there and I'd walk around. And this thing's blooming in different different months. This thing's blooming in November and December. And I'm going, you know, every time I've searched for a gardening book and I've done my homework, Every single book that I've experienced lists the plants in alphabetical order. I said to myself, why isn't there something that lists them according to month? So that's where Gardening by Month came. And I was so excited. So I started writing and writing and writing. And I said, listen, you can have, it doesn't have to just be flowers. It could be flowers. It could be foliage. There's beautiful foliage. It could be the bark. It could be the berries to give interest 12 months of year. So when somebody asks me, I, for a garden that has 12 months of interest, I say, yes, you can have 12 months of interest. And the book specifically is for those who garden in the mid-Atlantic and northeast, which we're defining as pretty much from Virginia up north through, mm-hmm. I would say, Vermont. Yes, and believe it or not, I have friends in Canada who are zone 7, so... <laughs> It, it, it's, it could really, the, the plants that I'm talking about in the book and all my books are hardy in zones three through nine. 
So it really could go further than that, but I kept it to Northeastern and Mid-Atlantic gardening because that, that's the main area that, that we're in. Mm-hmm. And that is consistently similar soils, similar mm-hmm. uh, types of rainfall. So obviously um, the same amount same amount of care, say, that a plant would get. Obviously, there's going to be pockets of, of a little bit of differences, mm-hmm. but um, are you doing those observations in your client's gardens and your own garden? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. And also, because I'm a blogger, I am communicating with other gardeners all over the world, pretty much, and they're posting their flowers and what's blooming when. So. I can see the the difference in the timing, and that's helped a lot as far as the book as well. So you're talking, there might be maybe a two week difference, you know, between some of the areas or there's different microclimates, but that's how I've centered it by looking at my gardens, my clients' gardens, and gardens from all on the, the eastern seaboard. Yeah, I definitely noticed that two week difference uh, when spring comes on, say in March to April. Um, just driving from, say, Northern Virginia and going up to New Jersey, you can almost follow day by day, you know, daffodils here. And then five days later, daffodils are open here. Uh-huh. Um, and same progression with a lot of plants. So that's lovely to see. Yes, yes. Well, even different areas, everyone's saying that things bloomed earlier this season for us. I have to agree to some point at the beginning of the season, Things were blooming earlier, and now we seem to be on track. So there's always that little bit of wiggle room, which you have to expect. Keeping track of it every year is interesting to see because your own memory can be faulty. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I've noticed that sometimes I'll go back on my uh, Garden Bloggers Bloom Day posts, which is the 15th of each month, and mm-hmm. compare and contrast what was blooming then, what was blooming this year. And I'll think that something is a little early, but then I'll go back a few years and I'm like, nope, it was blooming just right on time. It just felt a little early for me. Exactly. And and that's the post I'm referring to as well, Garden Bloggers Bloom Day, <laughs> that we post on the 15th of every month. And it's it's wonderful. Yeah. And that was started by Carol Michael on May Dream Gardens blog. And has migrated to her own site. I think it's just Kara Michael is the website. And Michael's Correct. without an A. It's just M-I-C-H-E-L. So if you're looking for that. Or you can just Google Garden Bloggers Bloom Day. And you'll find one of those bloggers who does it. And then we we link back to Carol's index where everybody shares it each month there. It's a terrific meme that she has there. Yeah, it's a great resource because it's made me actually keep track because I know in our busy lives, would I be writing down every month what is blooming in my garden? No. But because of that meme that she started in that uh-huh. sharing, I'll at least take five minutes out of that day and run around and take <laughs> some quick pictures, make a quick list, and throw something up there and try to keep track and participate. So it's definitely great for, for a reminder and for getting yourself to, to do something because, you know, it's called outside peer pressure or outside um, deadlines are more important than your internal ones always, right? Absolutely. And Carol, dear Carol, has actually managed to get us to run out in the middle of January in a snowstorm to get a picture of the flowers. 
<laughs> Gotta love it. <laughs> we'll have to let her know what she's inspired. And and of course, this is participated in by bloggers all over the world. So it's fun to visit their the other websites and blogs where people are posting what's blooming for them and and their region and just to see how much we have in common and, and how many differences there are. Absolutely. Yes. So getting back to your book, Gardening by Month, so the core of the book are the plant lists and what's in bloom or of interest that month. Uh, then the last third are kind of the garden tasks or chores that you would be doing in the garden that month. And that is of interest to me because in our magazine, Washington Gardener Magazine, we have a list of what to do in the garden for the upcoming month. And of course, the list is just a set of suggestions. It's definitely not a must-do list. Um, how do you treat your list? Uh, it's mostly, I would say the same. It, it's not a must do, but it, it's recommended chores that are, if, if they're performed, it will extend your gardening season for maybe a couple more months. Uh, I have several tips I could share with you. Sure. Our listeners would love that. First of all, August, September, I call cleanup time. Cleanup time means rejuvenating your plants. For example, your hostas, clip off those stalks that, go, that are going to seed. Because if you let them continue going to seed, now, I guess I let the bees get to them, I let the birds get to them. But if you cut those off, it'll put the energy back into the plant. Uh, the same thing with coral bells. And my salvia, uh, my salvia, I, and I teach this to several of my clients. If you deadhead your salvia starting in July, I deadhead in July and then again in August, I will get blooms, believe it or not, on my salvia through fall. And what you do is if you hold up any three fingers on your hand, the middle stalk will be the one that's expired. You cut that off. You will see buds coming out of the other two on each side. Once they're done, they'll get another two stalks coming up. Clip out the dead. Keep doing that and you will get blooms over and over again. Uh, with my daylilies, I discovered a trick years ago. Most uh, articles will tell you to remove the stalks. Uh, once they die back and you'll get more blooms. I go a little bit further and I just did this last week. I completely remove any brown foliage, stalks, you name it. I go down to about, uh, I would say about four inches off the ground. I remove everything except the new growth that's coming up. If you do that one week later, and I can prove it because I'm I, looking at my garden. One week later, you'll have blooms. What happens is it sparks new foliage. So the new foliage comes up. Photosynthesis is occurring. The plant is taking that energy. That energy is going back into the roots. It's causing the new foliage to come up. And then the blooms start coming up as well. All right, so within mine actually did within a week. It could be a week, two weeks. But it completely rejuvenates the plant. That's a great tip. And I had heard that from a daylily breeder I had been speaking to, too, that he cuts his daylilies 
all the way back, foliage and all, after that first blooming, and uh-huh. then he gets a great rejuvenation. So that that's wonderful to get that um, evidence in your own garden that it's working. It absolutely works, and it's funny. the The reason I discovered this is because a few years back, the landscapers were clean helping me clean up my garden, and they completely chopped the daylilies. I had a meltdown. <laughs> I said, what did you do to my day, Louis? <laughs> and then a week later, all this new growth is coming up. And I was like, oh, okay. This is something I'll be doing every year. So it was from by accident that they, I told them to clean it up. So they cleaned it up. And that's, that's how I learned it. And that's, that's one of the tips I put into, that's in a guide to Northeastern gardening. That's one of the, the infamous tips as far as getting those day lilies to keep blooming. And I love your advice about the the salvia and cutting them back. And so when you're deadheading the salvia, you're not cutting back the entire stalk all the way back down as you are for the heuchera and the hosta. You're just selectively going back and cutting out that middle stalk. Yes, it's a little more tedious, Kathy, mm-hmm. but it's worth it. But I have to admit, later in the summer, like now in August, late August, Sometimes I get a little lazy and I'll just <laughs> I'll just clip the whole thing. I'll just take it in my hand. I just did this with a client the other day. She goes, really? I said, believe me. So we just take the whole dead part in hand and just clip. And it cleans it up and it, it gives it a nice rejuvenation. And that sounds similar to what we do with basil at about this point in the season, which is give it a good haircut to rejuvenate it because it starts to get you know, a little lanky, a little long, a little tired. Yes, and it, and it works. Basil, mint, uh, parsley, all of those plants really benefit from from cutting back. And there's so many others. Uh, the Veronica, for example. I became a fan of Veronica last year. There's one called Magic Show. It is gorgeous, and the thing blooms from June to fall. I I couldn't believe that even in the winter time I was still seeing green foliage. So this has become one of my favorite plants. Also, some of my favorite plants. Um, we mentioned coral bells. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with uh, caramel? Oh yeah, that, yes. that's one I especially love. Sem- the listeners might be interested in this one because this one is semi evergreen. It will keep its foliage all winter long. Now, mind you, it might get a little crispy from from the winds and the drying, but it keeps its fo- it doesn't completely die back like other perennials. It keeps its foliage all year long. So what I have is I have the caramel coral bells, and then I put it next to variegated golden sedge. You familiar with that one? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. That combination. It's evergreen. You have the caramel color with the golden. It looks fabulous, and it's, for all the listeners out there, it's low maintenance. The sedge, you don't even have to, you don't really have to touch anything. In the spring, maybe I'll clean up my coral bells a little bit, just get rid of some of the the brown foliage that's underneath, and it sprouts well new growth. So if you're looking for low maintenance, those are two great plants to to have in your garden. Mm -hmm. And that's especially a nice one to do, even in containers, uh, a hookah and a sedge, because that's literally almost no maintenance as you said correct and you can mix the different hookah together what i found out of all the hookah the um 
caramels and the palace purples are the best ones. Those are the most hardy. I've tried every, because before I plant something in a client's garden, I have to try it myself. I have to experiment with it. So I know if it's going to be hardy or not hardy, and then I'll recommend different plants based on that. But those two are the, the hardiest varieties out there. Yeah. And I also like Autumn Bride. Do you ever grow that one? I have not grown that one. That I found to be a pretty, pretty tough one. Um, so that's more in the green side of things, but mm-hmm. really tough. And that one I see in a lot of um, native plant gardens that people use that as a ground cover and that, that really performs well. Is that a hybrid? Is that the the uh, hybrid between the native? Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And your plant ratings in your book, uh, you mark when something, of course, is a pollinator favorite or drought tolerant. But the rating I think that a lot of us are really looking for is that little deer with the exo, right? <laughs> so meaning it's deer resistant. So yes. let's talk a little bit about deer resistance versus deer proof. Yes. I have tackled that one over the years. Now here on Long Island, our deer population is really exploding. And what's interesting is that depending on which town you're in, the deer have differences in their likes and dislikes. So I was very, very careful in recommending. So if I recommended something is deer resistant, and if I've seen them nibble it, I'll say however they may nibble. Uh, I can give you some deer resistant plants that are fail, fail proof though. Um, the best deer resistant plants are Coreopsis. I like Zagreb. I find that to be the most prolific. Nepeta, they will not touch. Salvia, they will not touch. Spirea, uh, Weeping Norway Spruce, the Golden Sedge. Uh, let's see, what else? I'm trying to think of some other ones that are deer proof. Um, Yarrow, deer proof. Uh, Veronica is semi deer proof. But what I'll do is I'll, I'll indicate, like I said, in my book, uh, for example, Liriope, Lily Turf. That was deer resistant all the way up until last year when in one of my clients' gardens, and only one of my clients' gardens, she has about 20 deer come out of the woods every evening. They ate the liriope down to the ground. I was shocked. So I had to do a little disclaimer that mileage may vary, (laughs) that (laughs) they they don't necessarily do what they're told. And even um, another one, uh, skip laurel, skip laurel and cherry laurel is that's on the deer resistant list. Same ladies garden. They nibbled on it. So they covered it up one over the winter and it was fine. It must've been, they, they're, you know what it is that there's just, they're so starving that they'll get to a point that they'll, they'll try it. Even with mm-hmm. the still be, it still be as deer resistant. I'm, and I'm putting that in, in quotes. Um, it is, However, in one garden, again, it's always one garden, they ate the flower. They left all the rest. They ate the flower off of one plant, but then they left it. So sometimes they, they want to sample the plants. But if you plant things that are considered undesirable due to their aroma or their taste, those are the main deterrents, you'll keep them away. Do not, and I repeat, do not plant things like hostas, use and emerald green arborvitaes. That's deer candy. And they will come for sure. Good point about, you know, 
the sedges especially they they leave those alone and i will second that one for a variegated liriope that i have i have a resident bunny who decided to mow that <laughs> down to the ground and i thought of all the things in my garden to eat that's what you picked uh-huh. <laughs> and he she he or she actually did me a favor by taking it down to the ground at the end of the winter when of course everything was kind of sparse in the garden <laughs> and so i didn't have to do that little cut back then for for the brown foliage well see a uh, helpful money mm-hmm. <laughs> as long as she leaves the rest of my stuff alone exactly yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. so you have those ratings on there and of course as you say, your mileage may vary because every generation of deer has to learn and sometimes they'll go up and sample those will still be flowers and then decide they don't like them. They're yucky. They're not going to eat them in another garden, but meanwhile, they've eaten all yours right. um, that you have. So it's, it's always like that. Uh-huh. But you know, you have to be careful. And what I also recommend if the area is heavily deer populated, like I, I, they, I know they won't eat the spirea, the coreopsis, the nepa, those things I mentioned, or the salvia. They will not touch those. I've never seen those touches. But things like if the client wants some liriope because it's a pretty plant, or the skip laurels, which I've only seen eaten once, I suggest why don't you just spray it with some of the deer out just the first season. So they take that first nibble, and then they go, oh, I don't want that. And then that deters them, they go off to the, the next person's garden. So that, that's a little a tip that, that people can use. So let's talk about some of your favorite plants. And in the book, you don't just give the class of, of plants. You actually give specific cultivars that you like to use. So I'm going to give the example of Solidaga and you like golden fleece. Mm-hmm. And why is golden fleece your favorite of all the goldenrods available <laughs> on the market? I like it because it's a little bit more on the dwarf side. I think it's a brighter yellow and it's very long blooming. So that's, that's why I, I went with that one. And I discovered that one at, um, actually it was a planting fields arboretum here on, on Long Island. I go to visit there regularly and Saldego is absolutely gorgeous at at this time of year and i just fell in love with that one so that's that's the one i went with and another one that you cite for this season of august september are different of the selections of the tall sedum so you have a sedum spectable brilliant Uh that's a nice one for the reason uh the old-fashioned sedum the um autumn joy they're beautiful, but they tend to get very leggy and the flowers are so large on them that they end up flopping over towards the end of the summer. So I always heard complaints about, is there anything that's smaller? They came out with Brilliant, mm, let's say several years ago, and I fell in love with it immediately because while the Autumn Joy grows to two, two and a half feet and gets floppy. Brilliant only stays at 12 to 18 inches. The blooms are a deeper pink and the plant is more compact. So you're getting that wow factor starting now in August and going through fall without the maintenance of having to stake the plant and have to deal with that. Also, 
for some reason, it's, it seems to get less bees. The Autumn Joy is always loaded. Now, we love bees. Don't get me wrong. But the Autumn Joy is always loaded with bees to the point you can't really put it. I, I don't really put it next to a walkway, but the, I find that the Brilliant, you have your pollinators. But um, like I said, it's not flopping all. Maybe that's it because it was flopping all over the place and near your your areas where you're entertaining so the brilliant stays nice and compact and the pollinators love it and like i mentioned it's a nice uh, much brighter pink it is a lovely one and most of the selections in your book are either woody plants or perennials and one i noted that you have for the august september timing that i consider a tender perennial and sometimes just an annual is gara or bee blossom uh i haven't well, here in Zone 7, we, I haven't seen an issue with it. Uh, it's hardy for a much core climate, but you have to be, you do have to be careful with that one, I guess. You know, like I said, I haven't had a problem with it here. Um, maybe in the, the lower zones, you have to put it in a more sheltered area to, to protect it. Yeah, I think so. And I think well, some of the issues here in Virginia, Maryland, D.C. area will be our clay soils. Mm. Um, because Gara can really rot out really easily. True, true. Yeah, so you have to watch the, the soil as well. Well, what I would recommend that with a, with a clay soil, uh, break it up with compost. And also what we do with clay soils, because we have clay soils on the island here too. If you go to the North Shore, it's very it, it's a totally different animal uh, between the North Shore and the South Shore. What we do is we drill pilot holes, meaning uh, we drill down into the, or, or, or wick or wick holes, you can call it, uh, you drill down into the soil about three feet with a post hole digger, and then you add gravel to the bottom and it forms these wick holes. So it drains the soil much better. So the combination of that with the compost helps your plants. Um, and and that, that goes for, for everything. But if you have that really compact soil, that's, that's a way to, to get that drainage going. Hmm. And how far apart do you do those holes, like every couple of feet? Depending on how bad it is, uh, I would say three feet apart. And do you use an auger or what type of tool would you use for that? You can use an auger. That would make it a, either that, that would make it a lot easier. Uh, we also use the post hole digger and just keep digging down and into the soil. But yes, definitely you can use an auger. But it's very, very effective. We've had gardens and lawns flooding. And sometimes you do need a dry well, but in the case of the clay soil, those gravel-based holes really allow the, the drainage to, to happen. Nice. And I can imagine you're doing it where you're not competing, of course, with large tree roots. Right, right. If you have large tree roots, that's a, that's a whole other ballgame. Uh, as far as trying to, to plant anything around the tree roots. Uh, normally, I have to go with uh, like a Vinca ground cover, uh, Pachysandra, something like that, that has a shallow root that will spread with rhizomes uh, it's, it's, instead of trying to compete with the roots. Moving a little bit later into the season, um, some of the fall favorites you list, and one of them is the Montauk daisy, or sometimes it's called the Nippon daisy mm -hmm. and that one I have a little bit of trouble with just because I find the lower foliage to be unattractive how about you I can give you a nice little tip yeah which I'm sure you probably already know uh with the Montauk daisies 
pinch them back all the way through mid-June. You'll get a much more compact plant. My plant is outside. It's gorgeous. It's green. It's full. It's compact. Then you don't get all that brown foliage underneath. Mm, good tip. A little late for this year. <laughs> <laughs> next, next year. But definitely for next year. <laughs> and I like that you note that it's also salt tolerant, not just drought tolerant. So yes, it's, it, it's a good pick for something that might be on the edge of a road that gets a lot of salt spray. It's good for the edge of the road and also does very well down by the water because we get the salt spray here. So those on the eastern shore or, you know, any anywhere near shore like Cape May, that's probably a great choice for you. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you'd like to, some other plants are good for uh, salt spray, uh, Hollywood juniper good for salt spray, crepe myrtle, believe it or not, I've planted down by the water and it's deer resistant and it takes the salt. Um, some of the, the pines, uh, the, the pines take take the salt. Um, trying to think of, uh, not, yeah, mugo pine. Mugo pine seems to do pretty well uh, down there. So there, there are certain things that will tolerate it more, more than others. We had talked earlier about daylilies, and I find daylilies to be really salt tolerant. Yes, I, I find them indestructible, to tell you the truth. That's why I, I that's why I use them all the time in my gardens. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, aside from deer eating them, otherwise the, they're kind of like the one that just keeps on going and going. You can't kill a day lily. <laughs> so one of the woody plants that you cite is one of my personal favorites, which is the Calicarpa americana, the American beauty berry. Yes. Yes, that that is an absolutely magnificent shrub. Those purple berries that you get in the late summer, fall, that last through winter are absolutely breathtaking. Uh, And they're loved by the birds, so you're helping the ecosystem. And you're helping yourself because you get to look at those beautiful, beautiful plants. It's not so much about the foliage. It's that, that vibrant purple color that you really don't see on any other berry producing plant is it's just it's just gorgeous yeah there's such a true royal purple you know as opposed to say a burgundy or a violet tint so it's just amazing in the garden but yeah in my own garden i find the birds go for that berry first mm-hmm. <laughs> and they strip <laughs> of course it. so i i never get to see them late maybe even past november they, they pretty much strip the berries but at least i get a couple good months out of them Right, right. Well, also there's this winter berry. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Nellie Stevens Holly has a, a nice berry on it too. Mm-hmm. And I was going to ask on the American Beauty Berry. It can be a little bit of a rangy plant, like kind of throwing up one um, stem this direction, another stem another direction. What are your maintenance tips for that? All I do is if I see a random branch, I just tell the client, just snip it off to, to keep it compact, keep it, keep it nice looking. I tell them that with all the plants. Um, now, the beautyberry, it's, it's meant to be like that. It's meant to be a wispy plant. It's more of a natural type of look for a natural garden. Uh, but just a little snip here and there, just to, just to prune off uh, the bottom branches that are coming out from the bottom, just snip them off. And then that'll put more strength back into the, the rest of the plant. Good advice. And uh, another fall blooming plant that's actually starting to bloom now for me 
that I love is the uh, Japanese anemone. Do you have any specific favorite cultivars of that? Hmm. Uh, kind of. I they're beautiful. I kind of I kind of like all of them. <laughs> so uh, I would go with with any of them. And there's there's all different varieties and different colors and. Uh, I would say just go with whatever you like because it is, it's a beautiful plant and I love that it's starting to bloom now and it, it goes into, it will go well into the fall with its flowers. You just have to be a little bit careful because it can be a bit of a thug, right? Mm, sometimes, <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> because it spreads by underground runner, it can... Right, you have to, you have to make it behave. <laughs> Uh, or at least dig and share those. those or dig and share. Yep. Yes. Yep. So Absolutely. It's one of those great pass along plants that you find at fall plant swaps very often. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it hates being transplanted. You know, at the first few days, it looks like it just like shriveled up and died. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you think but, it's done. Uh-huh. 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 Just know that it'll recover quickly. But yeah, it doesn't. It looks very droopy and unhappy the second you dig it. Right, right. You have to get water on it. I, I did tell you a story about a plant that I bought years ago and I was designing at the time. I was in the local nursery and I saw this lovely little ground cover called chameleon plant. It had beautiful little, not only green leaves, but it had green and cream and pink. And I said, oh, what a lovely little plant. I'll plant that in my front island bed. Hmm. Seven years later, I'm still trying to get rid of it. <laughs> so yeah. so much for the it's like look at me i'm beautiful it is highly invasive it, it it spreads by the underground rhizome so every so often it will pop up in the garden mm-hmm. so we learn <laughs> we learn by by that one a lot of people have learned their lesson of and that's hutonia and it, unless you have like a metal barrier as if you would also similarly for running bamboo mm-hmm. it's going to take over it it once yes. it gets established it will take over and unless you have it hemmed in by a curb or something else um and want it to be a, a solid ground cover there you're definitely going to have to uh be cutting it back constantly mm-hmm. and, and that that would be on a weekly basis not just <laughs> once a season and, and yes how about how about yucca Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've had more clients point to yuccas in the garden going, what do you think of this? And I go, yucca. <laughs> I, I also, before I was designing, had those in my front bed, only to learn that they don't like being removed. Uh, you, If you don't get the full root, they will continue popping up all over the place. So live and learn. Mm-hmm. So now when somebody says, that's a pretty plant, I say, mm, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You sure about that? <laughs> yeah. I do like yucca, though, in certain situations, like at the end of a bed or at a corner, um, you know, in a tough situation, it's a good plant. Yes, in a tough situation, they're good because the flowers are nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but for sure, just like Baptisia, yucca is one of those plants that you better know that you always want it in that place because you're never going to be able to get the full root system out. Right. You're stuck with it. (laughs) 
they need to have some type of special tag on those plants. That Saying once, warning. Yeah, warning. <laughs> but once planted, you will always have this. And that yes. could be a selling point. You know, that, that could be. Yep. That's, a, that's a positive thing that might actually, you know, get some new gardeners to select something on purpose. But just to know that, you know, two decades from now, that's still going to be yucca in that place. That's still going to be baptisia. And, you know, some other plants that are so deeply taprooted that you'll never get them all out. Absolutely. Like like the gardener that has a brown thumb, you can't kill it. Mm-hmm. There you go. Same thing with hostas. You can't kill hostas. Yep. You'll, you'll still be digging and sharing those for, <laughs> for mm-hmm. years. Even when the deer eat them back, they'll still come back. They just you. keep coming. Mm-hmm. And so for one final favorite plant to talk about, how about toad lily or Tricerdus? Oh, that's such a nice little plant. And the way I found that one is uh, we have a wonderful place in, on Long Island. Again, it's called the Peconic River Herb Farm. And um, I discovered it there. And it looks like an orchid to me. It's mm-hmm. just a beautiful little plant. And it likes shade and it likes moist soil. So it's perfect for anyone who has clay soil, for example, that has uh, a lot of water retention because it loves the moisture. So it's the perfect little plant for, for that type of situation, for like their shade or uh, a lot of uh, moisture in the soil. And, and it's just so pretty. It's a delicate little thing. And I totally agree with you on the, the orchid look to it. It's just these long stems um that hold up even in almost full shade but you know you'll get more flowering in part shade mm-hmm. and just an unfortunate common name <laughs> totally uh not with. <laughs> yeah i'm like that whoever did the marketing on that that wasn't a good name uh, i feel like orchid lily would have been much better or even fall lily right right toad lily i, I know mm-hmm. where they get some of these names from and I think it also confuses some people because they'll, they'll think of it as um, similar to Tradescantia or spider lily. So there's mm-hmm. that, those confusions with the common name. But if you just remember the Latin Tricertus, it'll get you there. Absolutely. So, Lee, how can our listeners find your blog and your book? Uh, okay, well, my blog is a guide to northeastern gardening. All you have to do is put a search in there. I also have another blog called A Guide to Landscape Design and Maintenance. It addresses insect issues, uh, different types of plants, uh, different types of diseases. So that one's more of a maintenance blog. Uh, Guide to Northeastern Gardening seems to be the the favorite of of many because I do the Bloom Day posts, but I also do uh, posts on the first of the month and it will be a feature plant or a garden uh, arboretum, for example, that I've that I've visited, or uh, or a new plant that just came out. Like I just saw my one of my latest posts was about Echinacea, which is a brand new plant. It's a cross between Rubecchia and Echinacea, and it is fabulous. I've tested it in my garden, and it is so wonderful. So I did a, a post on that. All right, so guide to northeastern gardening. Uh, as far as my books, very simple. Go, I'm on Amazon. If you go on Amazon and simply type in Lee, L-E-E, Miller Gardening, the four books will come up. And you can look at them. There's look insides, and you can check them out and see what they're all about. Terrific. And we'll include a link to your latest book on Amazon in our show notes as well. 
Thank you. And thank you, Lee, for joining us and talking about your favorite plants and garden maintenance. Well, this has been fun, Kathy. And once again, thank you so much for, for having me on. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Garden Flocks Plant Profile Garden Flocks, Phlox paniculata, is also known as tall flocks or summer flocks as opposed to the low-growing spring phloxes. Garden phlox is a perennial wildflower that is native to the eastern United States and is hardy to USDA zones 4 through 8. True to its common names, this phlox blooms in high summer and grows to 3 feet to 4 feet high. The flowers are visited by many kinds of pollinators. Garden phlox needs a location in full sun to do best, and it likes moist but well-draining soils. For a neater appearance, deadhead the flowers when they start to fade. This plant is susceptible to powdery mildew, which is unattractive but not deadly. To prevent it, choose cultivars that are bred to be more mildew resistant and plant it where it can get good air circulation. Phlox David has a pure white flower and has been a garden mainstay for many years now. Phlox Gina is a newer introduction that has purple-pink flowers and superior mildew resistance. Other great performing phlox cultivars to try include Glamour Girl, Delta Snow, Lavelle, Robert Poor, and Shortwood. Read more about phlox cultivars in the Phlox Trial Report at the Mount Cuba Center website, mountcubacenter.org. Garden phlox, you can grow that! What's new in the garden this week? Well, the best looking flower in my garden is the great blue lobelia, which I have the alba or white version as well. Both of those flower spikes are covered with pollinators and are looking fabulous right now. Over at the community garden plot, my sun gold tomatoes are bursting with fruits and I'm giving them away left and right and also picking more peppers and zucchini and trying to process them and use them as much in the kitchen as possible. And I want to give a shout out to our latest listener supporter, William Bonner. William, thank you so much for supporting the Garden DC podcast. In the local gardening world, there's a few events I want to tell you about. One is the Monarch Fiesta Month happening at Black Hills Park. It's a part of Montgomery County Park System in Boyds, Maryland, and that runs from September 4th to 19th. So check out the Montgomery County Parks website for all the different and various events associated with the Monarch Fiesta. And if you are into 
garden books, especially vintage and antique and rare editions, Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland is having a benefit sale the weekend of Saturday, September 4th and Sunday, September 5th. So it's a two-day book sale. Get there early because the best volumes, of course, will go fast. And then finally, a fun event for those pepper lovers. And this is a pepper fest at the Organic Vegetable Farm at Potomac Overlook Regional Park in Arlington, Virginia. So that will be September 11th from 1 to 4 p.m. Check out mgnv.org events for more details on that. And I don't know about you, but right now I could use some fun outside in the garden, tasting different peppers, and seeing what ones I might want to grow next year. Happy gardening! Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.